Hello, and welcome to the Hasta la Visa Baby podcast, a deep dive into U.S. immigration law and its relationship to fictitious characters in television and film. My name is Shai Dayan. I am an immigration attorney with Gibney, Anthony, and Flaherty, and I'm based in Los Angeles, California. And joining me today, as he does for every episode, he's also an immigration attorney. He's also with Gibney, Anthony, and Flaherty, but he's based in New York, and he's running for president of the Coalition for Moral Order. It's Mr. Roderick Potts. Here I am. Hi, Shai. How are you? All right. It's spring. Spring is in the air. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. It was nice and warm today. It was uh, almost 70 degrees today in New York City. So it's it is springtime. Welcome to winter and spring in Los Angeles. 70 degrees and nice. There you go. Well, we have such a great episode. All our episodes are great, but today is a, just the greatness keeps it keeps continuing, doesn't it? We're, we're both very excited about this one. Very excited. We've got so much to unpack, a lot to talk about, some pet peeves of ours. So let's um, you know get right to it. So first things first, have some housekeeping. You know, if you haven't done so already, we want you to subscribe to the podcast. You probably are listening to us through your desired, you know, podcast app right now. But, um, you know, Rod, you can find us on all the major streaming platforms. Rod has the list memorized. I sure can. Yeah. Let's, let's, run, let's run through their list quickly. We can be found on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Amazon, and et cetera. All of them. Everyone. Uh, we continue to get feedback from our faithful listeners um, new listeners, old listeners, some listeners in between, and we have an email address. Mm-hmm. And Rod, where can they email us? Our email address is astalaviza. That's H A S T A L A V I S A at gibney g i b n e y dot com. Fantastic. We would love to hear from you. So keep those emails coming. So let's talk about the uh, show and what we do here. So right. just a reminder. We are the Asta La Visa Baby podcast. We make immigration law fun. So every episode, we focus on a particular movie or a, t- a particular television show that features a foreign national character who is living in the United States. We are going to do a deep dive into the movie or television show focusing on the specific foreign national character. We are going to use our immigration detective skills to figure out what the character's U.S. visa status may have been what problems or issues the character may have faced living in the U.S., and we are going to talk about a hypothetical consultation if the character came to us to ask for immigration advice. And always, as an important note, we like to imagine that all the characters are living in a 2022 U.S. immigration world, unless we have a situation where historical events play a role in the discussion. And I think That's going to happen with today's movie, isn't it, Rod? That could be relevant, yes. Yes. So I know that you've been itching, itching to talk about the movie that we're going to be talking about today. And um, Rod, as you always do, can you please give us a breakdown of the comedy known as The Birdcage? I sure can, Shai. So The Birdcage is a 1996 comedy featuring an ensemble cast, including Robin Williams, Gene Hackman, Nathan Lane, Callista Flockhart, and Hank Azaria. Robin Williams plays Armand Goldman, an openly gay owner of a drag club in South Beach, Miami, called The Birdcage. His life partner, Albert, played by Nathan Lane, is the star of the show. 
the couple live in an apartment above the club where they raised Armand's biological son, Val, who at the time of the movie is 20 years old and away at college. Not only does Armand own the club, but he's also the creative director. What about me? What do I do? Do I just stand here like an object? No. You do an eclectic celebration of the dance. You do fussy, fussy, fussy. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Or Twyla, Twyla, Twyla. Or Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd. Or Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. But you keep it all inside. All right, just work on that. I'll be right back. It's looking wonderful, though. During an evening performance at the club, Val returns home from college, meets with his father Armand in the apartment, and tells him that he's met a girl in college named Barbara, and they're going to get married. Despite Armand's initial objections, he gives Val his blessing. When Albert finds out, he becomes hysterical. You look awful. What's wrong? Val's getting married. Don't be silly. I got a pork roast for dinner. I wanted to get filet mignons, but they're so expensive. Married? What do you mean married? You know what I mean. I don't understand. Yes, you do. No. Some girl he met at school. Oh, no. But he's just a baby. He's too young. He'll ruin his life. Listen, we've been through all that, all right? Bottom line is he's getting married no matter what we say, so the less said, the better. Oh, my God. Oh, I woke up feeling so good. Now all of a sudden I feel so funny. Just breathe. Those hysterical outbursts are absolutely the best. At any rate, so Val's fiance Barbara is only 18. Her father is an ultra-conservative U.S. senator named Kevin Keeley, played by Gene Hackman. Her mom is just as conservative, and Senator Keeley is also the vice president of the Coalition for Moral Order. Bravo, it's the perfect platform. Yes. I'm so glad I got on Jackson's bandwagon instead of Dole. Dole is just too, too... Uh, dark. Well, I was going to say liberal, but he's dark, too. Knowing that Barbara's extremely conservative parents would not approve of her marrying a boy whose parents are a gay Jewish couple who own and work in a drag club... Barbara tells her parents that Val's last name is Coleman, that Val's father is the cultural attaché to Greece and the housewife. When Barbara's parents want to visit Val's family in Miami to escape a political scandal, Val asks his father, Armand, to pretend he's straight, remove all the flamboyant decor from the apartment, and send Albert away. At first, Armand rejects the idea, but out of love for Val, he decides to play along. After a complete makeover of the apartment and even getting their openly gay Guatemalan house worker Agador to play a straight butler with the Hellenistically appropriate name of Spartacus, Barbara and her parents arrive at the apartment in Miami for dinner. Armand plays it straight and Albert decides to dress in drag to pretend to be Val's mother. At first, the evening goes well, but as the night progresses, things come undone and Barbara's parents start to suspect that things aren't what they seem. Eventually, the charade can't continue, and Val and Barbara come clean. My father owns a nightclub downstairs. My mother is the star. What? We lied to you. Barbara and I and everybody lied for us. These are my parents. This is my wife. And this is the lady who had Val. It's nice to meet you, Catherine. Very nice, Val. You've done a good job. Thank you. I'm very proud of him. I understand. Barbara, the nightclub downstairs, he owns it? Mm-hmm. 
You mean he's not a cultural attaché? No, and he... He isn't married to a housewife, and their name isn't Coleman, it's Goldman. They're Jewish. I don't understand. He's a man. They're both men. It can't be. You can't be Jewish. No. Barbara and her parents attempt to leave the apartment, but the press is waiting outside for them. They can't risk being seen leaving a gay couple's apartment, which is directly atop a drag club. Albert devises a plan to dress the Keeleys in drag so they can slip out with the audience at the end of the show undetected. The plan works, and Val and Barbara get married at the end of the movie. Thank you for that breakdown, Rod. I think um, we're going to get into this later, but uh, Val is awful. Val and Barbara are two <laughs> awful people. They really are. They're self-centered, and that what they put poor Armand and, and Albert through is, is ridiculous. I can't stand Val. I really hate him. The more <laughs> I watch the movie as I get older, I, I want to hit Val in the head. Anyway, <laughs> let me zen out right now, because I want to sure. talk to you about some interesting facts from this movie, because there are a bunch of interesting facts here. I think you're going to like these facts. Good. Breathe deep, Shy. Bring it back to the center. Let's get the, to it. Okay, here we go. The Birdcage is an English language remake of the 1978 Franco-Italian film La Cage à Foie and the musical of the same name. <laughs> La Cage au Folle. La oh, Cage what do I know? It's okay. Well, thank you. That's why we have you on the podcast. That's why I'm here. Upon its theatrical release, the film was number one at the box office for three straight weeks and made over $185 million worldwide. This is a good one. The Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, also known as GLAD, they praised the film for going beyond the stereotypes to see the character's depth and humanity. I really think that that's true. This was a really nice portrayal of the family values that uh, a gay couple can do. have. The movie was nominated for two Golden Globes, including Best Motion Picture by a, for a musical or a comedy, and Nathan Lane himself, he was nominated for Best Actor in a Motion Picture, Comedy, or Musical. And then finally, this is the kicker, Rod. Steve Martin was originally cast as Armand, and Robin Williams was going to play Albert. But scheduling conflicts caused Martin to drop out of the role, and um, Robin Williams was able to assume the role of Armand, and Nathan Lane stepped in to play Albert. So when we were talking about the research before and you said you found this 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 little nugget about this movie, I'm shocked. Uh, not so much at Steve Martin, because I think he might have been able to handle it. But Robin Williams as Albert, I think, would have been such a different movie. I absolutely love Nathan Lane's portrayal. Yeah. And I just can't imagine this movie with Robin Williams being Albert. Completely agree with you. Robin Williams was the perfect Armand. Nathan Lane was the perfect Albert. Robin Williams would have made this movie very different as Albert. I think coming off of Mrs. Doubtfire, where he was playing a character who was pretending to be a woman, maybe they thought that, that he could do that. But it's a different movie if they do it like that. Completely different, different movie. movie. And, and just Nathan Lane was such a delight in this movie. I'm Amazing. glad it worked out the way that it did. You know? Things happen for a reason, don't mm -hmm. they? So we're going to... Um, talk about not Robin Williams character, not Nathan Lane's character, because they were American. We're going to be talking about a hilarious character, the character of Agador, played by Hank Azaria. I love this character so much. I just laughed thinking about him. So Rod, tell us everything we need to know about Agador. Uh, sure. So as, as you mentioned, Shy Agador is played by, by Hank Azaria. He is a gay house worker, most likely in his somewhere in his 20s and is employed by Armand and Albert in their apartment. Agador dreams of uh, being in Armand's drag show. Armand, why don't you let me be in the show? Come on, aren't you afraid of my 
Watermeloness? Your what? My watermeloness, my natural heat. You're afraid I'm too primitive, right, to be on the stage with your little estrogen rockets, right? Oh, yes, you're right. I'm afraid of your heat. Agador typically wears skimpy outfits while working and usually sings and dances while carrying out his job duties. Excuse me. Hello. Ooh. Hello. What did you think? You look like Lucy's stunt double. No, I'm a combination of Lucy and Ricky. And it's terrifying. Agador is originally from Guatemala, and we learn in the movie that his parents brought him to the U.S. so he could have a career. Because you're a faithful houseman. Now go. Yeah, but my father was the shaman of his tribe, okay? My mother was the high priestess, okay? And why the hell did they move to New Jersey? I don't know. They're so stupid. Because they want me to have a career. Hello? A career? When are you going to let me audition for you again? When you have talent. Now take that wig off or I'll tell Albert you're wearing it. Agador is integral to the dinner scene with the Keelys. He's fitted with a suit and plays the Goldman's butler, going by the name of Spartacus. Good evening. I am Spartacus, the Goldman's butler. Please, come Come in. Agador is not only tasked with playing the Goldman's straight butler, but he's instructed to cook dinner as well. Agador has no idea how to cook, and his sweet and sour peasant soup is a failure. We last see Agador at the end of the movie as a groomsman in Val's wedding. So, okay, we know that Agador is um, the character of focus today. So now it's time to talk about immigration. And like always, we want to talk about what kind of visa would allow our character of focus to actually have been in the United States. So let's get into Agador, shall we? Let's do it. Okay. So we only have small tidbits of information in the movie about where Agador is from. We know his parents brought him to the U.S. from Guatemala. We know that they settled in New Jersey, but that's kind of all we know. So, Rod, the question is, what type of U.S. immigration laws would have allowed Agador and his parents to move and immigrate to the U.S. probably sometime in the 70s or 80s? And that's based upon what his age is in the movie. So, Before we talk about that, I think we have to talk a little bit about what was going on in Central American countries in the 1960s, the 1970s, and the 1980s, which really did lead to a large number of what we call undocumented immigrants settling in the U.S. So, Rod, I know that you are a a major fan of history. Give us some history here. Real quick, as an aside, you know, I noticed you mentioned the term undocumented immigrant. And I just wanted just to point out that as uh, immigration practitioners, that is the term we use, and that is the preferred nomenclature. Really, there is the term uh, illegal alien that's really fallen pretty far out of favor, and it's no longer the term. So, just as a quick aside, sort of a, a you know a teaching moment: undocumented immigrant, undocumented foreign national. Those are the terms that are generally used. Uh, that's the term that you know generally used now, currently, for someone who is who doesn't have lawful status. I love States. it when you teach. I love it. I like to teach. I like keep, to, you know keep it, teaching. I like it when people applaud my pedantic nature. So anyway, so getting back into the history a little bit, let's 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 take a quick peek that you know starting in the 1960s and going through pretty much through to the 1990s, there were numerous civil wars uh, throughout uh, the Central American companies and countries, including Guatemala. In Guatemala in 1960, uh, a 36-year civil war began as left-wing guerrilla groups started battling government military forces. The Civil War was marked by abductions, executions, disappearances, and unspeakable violence waged against civilians. 
Uh, in the 1970s, a series of military-dominated governments continued to escalate violence against guerrilla groups and indigenous communities in Guatemala. Now, the civil war officially lasted through 1996. Yeah, these were some brutal times. Not great to be living through things like that. Fortunately, you and I didn't have to ever live through things like that. But I imagine that this must have led people to flee these Central American countries for safety, right? Definitely. Due to the Civil War, many Guatemalans escaped the country by traveling by land to Mexico and then entering the U.S. without inspection, the sort of crossing over and not passing through the normal legal channels. This led to a situation where there was a very large number of undocumented Central American nationals, including Guatemalans, living in the U.S., coming here throughout the 70s and 80s. So, you know, when there's undocumented foreign nationals living in the United States, I assume that the United States government, they needed to deal with this. So how did the U.S. government deal with the growing number of undocumented Central Americans that were living in the U.S. during this time period? So in 1986, President Ronald Reagan signed the congressionally passed Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986 sometimes referred to as IRCA. This act introduced civil and criminal penalties to employers who knowingly hire undocumented immigrants, but it also offered legalization and eventual lawful permanent residence and citizenship to undocumented migrants who entered the U.S. prior to 1982. Kind of like an amnesty, huh? Yeah, it was referred to as an amnesty, definitely. And I imagine for such an amnesty to take place, there were probably strict guidelines regarding who could benefit from the amnesty portion of this law. Is that correct? That is correct. So to qualify for the amnesty, an applicant had to meet the following criteria. The individual must have entered the U.S. prior to January 1st, 1982, uh, have continuously lived in the U.S. since 1982, apply for legal status within a one-year window from May 1987 to May 1988, pay a fee, prove they'd not been convicted of a felony, or at least three misdemeanors and had not taken part in political, religious, or racial persecution. And one last note is that while the law did not address the status of children of undocumented migrants who were eligible for the amnesty, in 1987, uh, Ronald Reagan used his executive power to legalize the status of children of parents who had been granted amnesty. And Rod, how many undocumented people do you have any idea may have benefited from this amnesty portion of this IRCA law? So it's been reported that approximately 2.7 million individuals, again, mostly of Hispanic descent, uh, were granted legal status under this law. So, you know, we try not to get too political on this podcast, but I think this is a lesson for today's Congress. This is 1980s. The Republicans and the Democrats worked together. A Republican president passed an immigration law that allowed 2.7 million undocumented immigrants to legalize. 2.7 million. So this has to be, you know, something that today's Congress can look at and today's, you know, president or a future president can look at and maybe they can do this again, too. Maybe, possibly. It has been discussed, you know, the idea of another amnesty. So we'll, we'll have to keep an eye on it and see. It'll be it'll come up in our podcast, I'm sure. So this is really interesting because we were trying to think about how Agador could have been legally in the United States in the movie. Mm -hmm. And um, Rod. Could Agador have benefited from the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986? So in short, yes, they could have. Uh, if his parents migrated to the U.S. prior to January 1st, 1982 and lived continuously in the U.S. after that date, provided they stayed crime free, it's conceivable that Agador's parents and Agador himself were eligible to legalize the United States under this law. 
Yeah. I mean, last month when we first started talking about doing this movie, we said, let's do it. We don't really know what Agador's status was. But then thanks to a conversation I had with our coworker and great person overall, Lillian, um, Lillian told me a little bit about um, a situation she's familiar with because of personal in her personal life. And it led me to finding out that Agador could have benefited from this IRCA law. So thank you, Lillian out there, who is a coworker and a, a longtime listener of the podcast. We are big fans of yours and thank you for the help. Yeah. Thanks very much to Lillian for her help with this episode. It's fantastic. Yeah. Agador and his family, if they followed the rules put forth by this IRCA legislation, they could have been legalized in the United States. I'm very happy that Agador could have been legal. It's really good to see. Yeah. And, and again, as we pointed out, as the child of, you know, that he would have just been included if his parents had chosen to legalize, he would have been he would have been included with them. In that pro- in that Once process. again, we've thrown a immigration uh, character out there from a movie or a television show and we figured it out. We're just rolling here. So let me ask you a question, Rod. This is a movie that in part is about drag club culture, drag queens. Mm-hmm. Do you have any experience going to drag clubs, being at a drag performance, anything like that? Sure, I do. In the early 2000s, I found myself just on an odd night out in the East Village of Manhattan. I found myself at a a little club called Lucky Chang's. Amazing, because I have the same experience as you. So let let me, I do. We both, It's Lucky Chang's was in the East Village and was a Chinese restaurant that also had uh, drag waiters and waitresses, and they had a little drag performance. The food was really good. I think it was good. Rod, how did you find yourself there? What happened? Tell me the story. I found myself, there was a bar in the East Village called Waikiki Wally's that I Uh went to with a friend. And uh, somehow the kitchen or the back area of Waikiki Wally's somehow was connected to Lucky Chang's. I just, I found myself, my friend and I were feeling precocious that night. So we just walked through the back, through the storeroom, down a flight of stairs, down a hallway, and just all of a sudden just opened up and found ourselves in the middle of a drag show. How uh, how was that drag show? It was fantastic. We couldn't have been more delighted. Of course. Uh, And the staff there seated us, got us a couple more drinks, and, uh, you know, the night went beautifully. Drag shows are fantastic, no matter what your background. I love a good drag show. I later did go to uh, a birthday party where uh, a friend of mine for her 40th birthday party had a, had a drag performer. But what was your story story. at at Lucky Chang's? My story takes place, like many of my stories take place in 1999. What a a year 1999 was. So it was in between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college. And it was probably a week or two before I was going away to college. And my girlfriend at the time wanted to do kind of a going away party for me. So she Mm -hmm. decided to surprise me. And we went with a bunch of our friends. There were probably, I don't know, 10 of us all together. She made reservations for Lucky Chang's. And I had no idea what Lucky Chang's was. But we found ourselves in the East Village in Manhattan at a Chinese restaurant that had drag performers. And it was a wonderful evening. I'll never forget it. And um I thought about the birdcage when I was there because it was still one of my favorite movies, and it was a it that's, was a really fun time. That sounds like that sounds like a blast, and what a great it, it was a blast. College. My favorite moment was when my friend Josh got up to go to the bathroom, and uh, one of the waitresses, waiters, waitresses, pinched him in the butt, and he jumped, and it was so funny. I'll never forget that moment. <laughs> well, yeah. So Lucky Chang's 
unfortunately is no longer at that location in the East Village that you and I both went to, where we where we both uh, independently of each other. I can't imagine. I mean, it was after 1999 when I was there. We weren't there at the same time, unfortunately. But um, yeah, Lucky Chinese is no longer located at that. I believe it moved further north in Manhattan. Oh. So it might be located in Midtown or something like that. Probably I don't all know. mainstream. All mainstream. I haven't kept up now. with it. If Pete. If but if listeners are out there and they and they know it and like it and are going, uh, let us know and uh, you know perhaps we can we can do a, we can do a podcast event. Shout, that we do shout like out that. to Lucky Changs! I would love to do a podcast Sh- event at Lucky Sh- Changs. Shout out to Lucky Changs! Absolutely. <laughs> you know who would have loved Lucky Changs? Who? Agador. He definitely Agador, would have loved it. He would have wanted to perform. He would have. He would have. But before yeah. he performed there, he probably would have want. He would probably have come to us. Uh, for a consultation, or his parents would have. So let's rewind. Let's go back and pretend that we were lawyers in 1986, 1987. Um, sure. I probably had a mustache, probably <laughs> was wearing a leather jacket, big aviator sunglasses. Let's imagine it's 19 in the 1980s, and Agador's parents, they come to us to ask how they can qualify for the amnesty provision of the Immigration Reform and Control Act. Agador's parents, they want to know, you know, what kind of documents do we need to satisfy the amendment requirements? Rod, as far as their documents, what would you tell them that they needed? So to prove that they've been in the United States since before January 1st, 1982, and have been continuously present since then, uh, documents such as like pay statements, any tax filings they may have made, even things like utility bills, rental agreements, leases, bank statement, car payments, anything that would just tie them to a US address would be helpful, definitely. Many people might think that's difficult, but 2.7 million people, you know, got legal status because of this law. So, you know, it wasn't that difficult to present the type of evidence you needed to show that you were in the United States prior to January 1st, 1982. As far as in addition to documents, how would they prove that they were not convicted of crimes? Because that was important. The government made specifically clear that this law was not for people who had been convicted of certain crimes. So how would Agador's parents prove that they were squeaky clean? So the first thing that they could have done is gone to their local police department and gotten a what, what we call a police report, where it's just a letter from the local police department certifying that there's no record of any criminal arrests, criminal activity, et cetera. Uh, but also, and probably even more significantly, as part of the application process, applicants who presumably would have included Agador's parents uh, would have been fingerprinted and uh, would have gone through a series of background checks. And I'm sure Agador's parents, the high priestess and the shaman, I'm sure they <laughs> passed because, because they were in the United States and we know that they're legal. So I'm sure they passed. A big question probably would have been, how much was this going to cost? What were, besides our exorbitant legal fees, how much would the government filing fees be if they wanted to file these applications to legalize? So there was a basic application fee of $185 per applicant. For children under 18, that fee was only $50. And uh, there was a limit of $420 for the overall fee paid by any family, which would have been defined as a husband, wife, and children under the age of 18. So even if you had a 10-person family, you know, you were paying $420 for the for the whole family, which was, you know, maybe mm-hmm. expensive for the 1980s, but considering what you were getting out of it, pretty fair, I think. Sure. I mean, I I would think that, you know, I mean, but I think I think when we when we, you know, we talk about this, we talk about the individuals who were eligible for this, I think, you know, you're really probably talking about a large population that's living probably paycheck to paycheck right, right. or, you know, without a lot of 
major expenses. You know, these individuals had to kind of fly under the radar, uh, yeah. if you will. So, I mean, 420 could have been, uh, especially if you have a family with a lot of kids, it could have been a significant amount of money. But, you know, like we pointed out, a large number of people were able to- 2.7 million. To come up with the money and do this, right. which is fantastic. Really fantastic. And Rod, if successful, and the family was granted legal status by way of IRCA, what were the next steps that you would advise them be after they got their, their initial legal status? So after 18 months of legal status, they would have one year uh, to apply for permanent residence. That's a green card. And then after five years of being a permanent resident, they would be eligible to apply for citizenship. So that's our consultation. We would give them the basics of how they, Agador's parents, could apply for the IRCA protections and one day become citizens. And mm -hmm. um the consultation would have been fun. And I think you and I would have gone to Lucky Chanks to celebrate afterwards. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So now we're going to move on to the final takeaways portion of the podcast. And we have a very special guest with us. So he's making his podcasting debut. He's a case manager with Gibney. But more importantly, he's the cultural attache to the legal community. It's Mr. Adam Meninga. Adam. Hey, Adam. Hello, hello. Thank Hi. you for having me. It's so great to be here. Adam is a longtime listener and he's a first time guest. And we're and very... a longtime employee of Gibney Anthony and Flaherty. And, 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 and a very favored one. I a think the three, the three of us have been working together for over 10 years. Uh, how did it happen? Yeah. How indeed? Well, Adam, uh, as a longtime listener of the podcast, I think you know what this is all about. We're going to talk about the final takeaways, hot takes from the movie. I'm just going to throw some things out there, and we're just going to have some fun and talk about it. So, Fabulous. So let me get it started, okay? We're going to talk a lot about Val and Barbara and how awful they were. So let's talk a little <laughs> bit about Val and Barbara. So Val is 20. Barbara is 18. They're college students. Bar Barbara can't be more than a freshman. Val can't be more than, what, a junior? They've mm -hmm. probably only been dating for a few months. Can you tell me why in the world these kids needed to get married? Look, Robin Williams is just as dumbfounded by their wanting to get married at the beginning of the film as you seem to be. Uh, he can't accept it. Nathan Lane's character can't accept it the next morning when he finds out. Um, it's, it's a mystery. It's a mystery indeed. I, Rod, couldn't, ex I couldn't accept it either. It was, Rod, when you were 20, was that what you were thinking? You met a girl and you're like, oh, marriage. Last thing on my mind. I, I, I don't know anyone who is that age in, in my college experience who needed to get married. I feel like they could have just lived like, you know, the college lifestyle, sleep over each other's dorm rooms and just played house. I've been in a 15 year relationship. We're still not married. We don't even have palimony. Uh, no palimony. <laughs> no palimony. No palimony. <laughs> more, more about Val and Barbara. You know, these two so selfish, so immature they're lying. They're manipulating. They just were hurting everybody. Everybody around them was hurt by their their request to have people lie for them. What is up with them? Yeah, I don't get it. I mean, Val actually said to his father, I don't want you to get how you get. What, so does, that, what does that even mean? <laughs> he interrupted yeah. an important rehearsal and then was rude about it. Yeah, he did. I mean... Very, very, very bad behavior. I mean, he made he made his father redecorate the whole apartment. He made his father pretend to be something that he wasn't. Albert, the man who raised him, he basically yeah. could care kicked less him out. about his feelings and kicked him out. Kicked him out. Yeah. And I, 
made, I was, leave, made him go to Los Copa to get Los buried Copa. with his toothbrush. To be buried with his <laughs> I was shocked. I, I was actually pretty shocked that um that uh that Robin Williams would go along with that. I mean not Robin Williams, of course, but like Our you punch. know that that Armand would 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 have gone along with that. I was kind of like I you know was it like, bad parenting? Like his, like his partner of of how many years just send him away? I mean, I I get that it feeds the story, but it was yeah that Val is is ridiculous. The ridiculous web of lies. I understand this is a farce, so it had it has to happen or else there's no movie. But this ridiculous web of lies. The attaché to Greece, like. I, I, where did they come up with that? Adam, as the attaché to the legal community, can you tell us what, what that entails and what it would mean if you were the attaché to Greece? I have no idea. I feel like that's just something Barbara came up with for her parents that they all then had to go along with. And she's an 18-year-old. What does uh, she know? What does she, she know? know? Yeah. How, how long did they think, let's say this worked, let's say they convinced the parents for one night that their last name was the Coleman's, that they were not Jewish, that they were conservative right wingers, that that they were straight. How long did they think this was going to last? I, I, what, what, what kind of world were they living in? Um, a French farce world, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have to say, though, Val's saving grace is that at the end, towards the end of the movie, when the when the farce is revealed and everyone's coming clean, Val's the one who genuinely comes clean and expresses his love for both of his dads, which is touching and does it make up for an entire movie's worth of sins i don't know but it is it's something it, yeah. you know as i was watching the movie and 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 albert revealed that this is you know these are my parents it was a loving moment but like you said it doesn't make up for all the terrible things that he put them through before that i mean that needs to be grounded grounded <laughs> well, yeah and i mean the the, the one the, the scene i i I thought it was a little poignant, and I and I, I did note that uh, when Val's mother calls him from the car phone, and she and she says, uh, "I'm really from happy." Her fabulous to, white BMW convertible. Fabulous white phone. BMW convertible on the car phone. Nice. Um, and she says, "I'm so glad I can do this for you." And you can see Val. You sort of see his expression change as like as in I have no idea who you are. I don't know you. And the people who are really helping me are running around the house like crazy, pretending to be who they're not. And I think that's that's where he realizes that he's made a mistake. And then he does try to rectify it at the end by saying, these are my parents. But yeah, I just the 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 fact that he's so ashamed of them to begin with and, you know, uh, bad form tries bad. to stuff them in the proverbial closet is not uh, not not cool, Val, not cool. Yeah, and Armand, you know, bad parenting. Like he, he just lets it go pretty quickly. He's he he lets his son get married at twenty. He goes along with with shunning Albert. Armand needed to stand up for himself a little bit more. That's what I uh, that, that's what I'll say about Armand. Yeah, no, I I see that. I mean, he is genuinely shocked though when he finds out that his son's getting married, um, as as you would be too. And then they say that uh, there's nothing they can do, that their kids nothing. are going to do what they're going to do. Mm. Nothing, nothing. So we're going to have to transform our whole apartment into. So, so, so that leads me that leads me to this question. Once they decided that they were going to transform their whole apartment and they were going to have the senator and his wife over for dinner, 
why didn't they just order in? Why did they have to go through the charade of having Agador, who's never cooked a meal in his life, cook? Why, why didn't they just order in? Wouldn't I? Ever since I was in high school and I saw this movie, that was the first question I asked. I guess Armand thought he could cook because Val asked Agador if he could cook. And then he said, your father seems to think so. <laughs> but th- there, there were trims. So I mean, there were shrimps. There were shrimps. I, mean, <laughs> I guess houseworkers, houseworkers should should know how to cook, right? I mean, it's it's, it's a given. Yeah, but there's also probably plenty of decent catering in South Beach that they could have had ordered in. Why not save yourself the trouble? I agree. Yeah, mm. but but we would have no movie if that happened. The, I mean, that 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 whole thing was a lot of great. There was fodder for a lot of great, uh, you know, comedic value. Of course, and of course. While the meal was being cooked, we got to hear. Maybe my favorite portion of the film, which was Gene Hackman's story about the drive down to Florida. The foliage. <laughs> that foliage. <The> foliage. <laughs> amber waves. Talk about your amber waves of great. Or what you talk about your purple mountains majesty. <laughs> I I I I'm scared. The road. That, I'm scared. Cutting through my, the green. Cutting through the green. <laughs> I hope our conversations in our podcast is a little bit more entertaining than that riveting story by the senator. Diane Weist seemed to be entertained by it. So it's a lovely story. Um, Hopefully, Diane Weist is listening. I, I, I hope let's, so. Let, let's hope so. Yeah. Now, the fashion in this movie, pretty fantastic, right? Um, the one thing that Rod and I really noticed was how big Armand's pants are. I mean, those are some baggy pants he's wearing. I don't remember that being a thing for men in their guest 40s or men in their 40s or 50s in the 90s, but maybe it was. I, I don't know. In 2022, those faces would be fully beat. You'd block your brows with glue. You'd fully transform your face if this is 2022 in a post-RuPaul's Drag Race world. Mm-hmm. In 1996, that drag makeup by today's standards looks pretty busted. And that's, even on the good queens, not just Gene Hackman. Well, that's why we have you on this on this episode, Adam, because you can Happy tell us the things here. that we just aren't experts at. So thank you for that tidbit. Gibney's cultural attache. <laughs> educating all of us about drag queens and makeup. Um, another question I have for you is um, it goes back to Val and Barbara. So how long do you think the marriage lasted? Well, the wedding looked pretty great. I mean, they had both sides. Someone asked if Bob Dole was hot. Um, gorgeous. I believe the word was gorgeous. Yes. I mean, I don't want to be a naysayer. Um but I don't think anyone has a real shot if they get married at twenty. I'm, I'm, Rod. Your take? Because I have, a, I have some, I have some things I'm, to say. I think I'm inclined to agree somewhat with Adam on this. I think they probably are jumping into it too quick. And over the course, we don't really see them together much at all over the course of the movie. It's just at dinner, and so we don't see the two of them interact at all. I think it's impossible to tell. Like I said, they can't know each other for more than a few months. They're basically kids. There is no way that this marriage lasts past Val's senior year in college. He graduates from college. He goes to the work world. He's partying. He's meeting people, adults. It's over. And let's be honest. Barbara's probably going to some frat parties and meeting some other boys who could, you know, do some things for her too. So that marriage did not last. The marriage that does last in the film, though, is uh, Armand and um, I'm blanking on Nathan Lane's character. Albert. 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 Armand Armand and Albert. Yeah, yeah they're, the, they're the real heart and the real like emotional core of the movie, which is why I think all of this sort of Val and Barbara being jerks kind of works in the end, because the people who we're meant to identify with as kind of the heart and emotional core of the film 
are the gay couple at the center of it. And and that actually is a great segue to I think the the most important part of, part about this movie is that you know this movie in 1996 presented us with such a positive depiction of gay life and that it can be loving and it is loving and that it's really no different than and maybe even better than some straight marriages. So I mean what do you guys think about uh, how did it impact you in 1996? How does it impact you now when you see this depiction? Uh, Rod, would you like to start? <laughs> well, so I, I watched this. I, I, I'll say I watched this movie in college. I rented it on VHS and I, I watched it. It was over 20 years ago. I can't, I don't remember the impact it had on me to be quite honest in 96, but rewatching it the other night, I definitely, um, I definitely agree. I mean, the, the only healthy relationship in this movie uh, are, are, Almond, are Armand and Albert. Not to say that they don't have their problems, but, you know, they are, they're, you know. A loving they, couple. They're a loving couple. They're, they, they're supportive they of each other. They raise a child. Other. They raise a child together. They raise a child together and, and their child loves them both. They're both, you know, they're, they're, a, they're, a, they're a, a happy functioning, like perfectly happy functioning normal family. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you look at the, uh, you know, all the other families are, you know, the, the senators, the family, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're a very traditional family, but to me, I, I, I think there's an undercurrent of them all being miserable. It's not acknowledged in the film, but I think that's, we're meant to, to think that, I mean, Diane Weiss does such a great job of <laughs> coming off so she's just she's just constantly in search of the right thing to say i just i think she i think she was so fantastic in that as just this this re, it was very, her character i thought was actually very depressing but <laughs> it was her 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 performance was genius um, yeah she doesn't sell us on the happy couple of it though no definitely <clears throat> not you know i i saw this movie when i was a freshman in high school and it's been one of my favorite comedies ever since. And I guess it, it was probably one of the first movies that I saw that depicted a gay life or, or, or a gay couple. And I thought nothing of it. It's just well, that's life. And it was cool to see. I enjoyed the movie till this day. It remains one of my favorite movies of all time. I think about this movie and I just start laughing. I think, Adam, you feel the same way. Totally. I mean, this was over two years before the pilot episode of Will and Grace. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of its cultural impact, it's, it's massive. I was a closeted eighth grader when this movie came out and, <clears throat> excuse me, and, uh, I got to see it because it had Robin Williams in it. So my parents let me, <laughs> and it was, um, hugely impactful because I was seeing something on the screen that I really didn't know I was yet kind of, but right. I mean, but seeing that type of positive influence that yes, you could be gay and live in a fabulous um, apartment over a nightclub in Miami that has those cute circular holes in the stucco walls <laughs> and mm -hmm. have all this fabulous art in your apartment. I mean, it's living the dream. And, right. and, and speaking of, you know, all things drag queen, Adam, an expert, I know you're a big fan of RuPaul and then the shenanigans that go on with RuPaul. You were telling me that you think Starina is a bad name for a drag queen. Is that right? Horrible. <laughs> that's not something i ever thought about tell me what you would have chosen for albert's uh character i mean i can't i can't create albert a drag name from whole cloth but right. a drag name usually has a fun pun in it uh -huh. or it's ridiculous right starina just it seems like a cop-out i don't like it 
back to the drawing board for Star Wars. Tra- <laughs> well, well, this podcast has certainly gone from immigration to uh, appropriate names for drag queens. Um, Adam, it was really fantastic having you on the podcast. Anything you want to plug? Any final remarks? The floor is yours. Uh, I just want to plug um, Schnecken, my Schnecken. favorite snack. Schnecken. And I just want to say that when the Schnecken beckons, um, got to get yourself some Schnecken. <laughs> Adam, on that note, it was great to have you. Um, and we hope you continue to listen and maybe we'll have you on in the future again. Yeah. yeah ab- avid listener, everyone rate, review, subscribe. Um, thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Adam for his brilliant hot takes. Great, great segment. Great fun. Thank you, yeah. Adam. Yeah, Adam. Maybe we'll have him back again. If you have we not, have to. Yeah, I think we do, yeah. right? If you have not done so already, again, please subscribe to the podcast and just don't subscribe, rate us. We love the comments. You please can do. find us again on all the major podcast streaming platforms. Rod loves to tell you what they are. So, Rod, once again, where can you find us? We can be found on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Amazon, and etc. And if you want to get in contact with us, besides finding us on your favorite dating apps, you can also email us. So, Rod, where should they email? That email, again, is hastalavisa, H-A-S-T-A-L-A-V-I-S-A at gibney, G-I-B-N-E-Y dot com. Very good. So the next two months, actually, we have kind of a theme for what we're going to go for here. Rod and I were talking. It's a loose theme. It's a loose theme. A loose theme. Like <laughs> all it's our fun themes for us. are loose. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's fun for us. Yeah, I think it still qualifies as a theme. What we're going to do yeah. is we're going to do one movie that honors the character of Rod's heritage, which is Cuban. And we're going to do one movie that honors my heritage, which is Israeli. So we're going to do the Cuban situation first. And mm-hmm. um, Rod, what's that movie? What are we going to do next time? That is going to be the Brian De Palma classic Scarface. Some guy named Al Pacino, right? Yeah, there's a two bit actor uh, named Al Pacino, but <laughs> Tony it's Montoya. really a De Palma document more Tony than a Pacino Montoya. document. But, but yeah, it's going to be very exciting. I'm very much looking forward to that film. So, um, everybody, stay tuned for May. We're going to talk about Scarface. And uh, Rod, I had a great time talking about the birdcage with you. I'm sure we'll talk about it in our private conversations again. Of course. But, uh, great fun. Yeah, great fun. Until next time. Hasta la vista, baby. 